Thank you, Chrissy. Well, last week, if you remember, we started a new sermon series in the book of Exodus, and we've entitled this series, From Captivity to Covenant. And so as we study this book, we recall how God drew his people out from slavery to himself. And we thought there would be a number of relevant lessons for us as we slowly emerge from COVID and return to community like we're doing little by little. As we'll see, even though Israel emerged from slavery, they immediately entered into the wilderness. In other words, life after Egypt was not a cakewalk. And yet God's purpose in calling them out of Egypt and into the wilderness was ultimately to draw them closer to himself. Likewise, even as we slowly emerge from COVID, there are numerous challenges. There is a heaviness that remains, both including in our personal lives, our country, and even around the world. Yet I genuinely believe that as we come out of COVID and enter into what may feel like still feel like a wilderness in some ways, the Lord can definitely use this season to draw us closer to himself. And indeed, he is what we need most. So let's look at this passage, which describes Moses meeting with God and being called by God to lead his people out of Egypt. And we're going to study this text under these three headings, God's hiddenness, God revealed, and Moses's response. God's hiddenness, God revealed, and Moses' response. Would you bow with me uh, one more time in a word of prayer before we do this? Indeed, Lord, we thank you for your very presence with us right now. Though we cannot see you, we know that you are here in the midst of your people and that by your spirit you are at work in our hearts, even as you are stirring up our sister Chrissy's heart in, in ways that were surprising to her, God. We, we believe you're at work in our hearts. We believe that you are here to to speak what we need to hear to us through your living word, this word that describes events from millennia ago, but nonetheless that have uh, modern and, and relevant lessons for us because your word is living and active. And so speak your word into our hearts by the power of your Holy Spirit. Remind us of what we need to hear and, and, and learn today. And so we commit this to you in Jesus' name. Amen. So first of all, God's hiddenness. Um, I want to begin by briefly surveying what's happened leading up to the incident of the burning bush. We read actually all of chapters 1 and 2 last week, but just quick recap. Due to the rapid multiplication of Israelites in Egypt, Pharaoh was feeling threatened by them, and he enacts an, an evil plan not only to oppress and enslave them, but to systematically wipe them out, to totally eliminate them. During this time, a Levite man and woman have a son, Moses, and due to the murderous edict of Pharaoh to kill all male Israelite children, his mother actually hides him for three months, which with a three-month-year-old or up to, you can do that because they're just pretty much swaddled and you just put them down and they stay there. But as they get older, as Moses grew, it would be harder and harder to hide him. So his mother makes a basket that could float on water, she hides him in the, in the area with lots of reeds, um, where there would be sound muffled and no one would really be. And she sent his older sister to see what would happen, to keep an eye on him. And so the basket drifts, ends up at the house of Pharaoh's daughter. And upon discovering him, Exodus 2.6 tells us she took pity on him, recognizing him as a Hebrew baby. 
Moses' sister intervenes when she sees Pharaoh's daughter holding Moses, and she cleverly suggests finding a Hebrew woman to nurse the child, knowing full well she was going to suggest her mom the entire time because this would be a way to get Moses back home. And so Pharaoh's daughter agrees to this, so he's able to go back home and stay with his birth parents, likely until around early elementary age, at which point he returns to Pharaoh's daughter to be raised under her roof and protected by her. Now, I just want to stop here, and I want us to fully appreciate what's going on, what's actually happening here. Think about this. His parents are Levites, a tribe that was set apart for priesthood. In other words, to provide spiritual leadership for the people of God, and that's exactly what Moses would one day provide. He was put in the Nile and found by, of all the people that could have found him, Pharaoh's daughter. And not only does she secure his safety, but Acts chapter 7, 22 tells us, Moses, he was instructed in all the wisdom of the Egyptians. In other words, he got a top-notch education and cultural expertise, which is gained through full immersion in the ways of Egypt, the very nation that he would one day have to contend against and be able to communicate with. Not only that, Pharaoh's daughter allows him to spend his early childhood with his birth parents so that he could learn about his roots, his culture, the faith of his forefathers. Without that time, he would have only identified as an Egyptian. He would have just thought he was an Egyptian. He would know nothing about being an Israelite. Not only that, the very man who would safely lead the Israelites through the sea for their salvation was himself saved from the water. His name was Moses, and he was named that way because he was drawn out of the water. And not just that, in various other ways, his experience mirrors the experience of Israel. He lives as an alien in a foreign land. He spends 40 years in the wilderness. He meets God on Mount Horeb, a.k.a. otherwise known as Mount Sinai. In all these ways, his journey mirrors Israel's journey. And as you could probably guess by now, none of this is by mere coincidence. If you look at the first half of Moses' life from a certain perspective, it's very tragic. Again, think about this. His mom had to give him away because of genocide that was happening. Yet there's a glimmer of hope. He makes it to Pharaoh's house, um, rising to a place of prominence and power. But then, one day... Out of anger towards the abuse of his people, he murders someone, he has to flee, he loses everything, he's left living as an exile, an alien in a foreign land, shepherding sheep, a job that was utterly despised by the Egyptians, the culture he grew up in, they, they despised shepherds, they looked down on them, and yet, here's what he was doing. But through all of this, through all of this in hidden ways, God was orchestrating all the events of Moses' life, the good and the bad, for his glorious purpose and according to God's perfect timing. Again, when Moses saw that Egyptian beating one of his people, he intervenes and kills a man out of a desire to save his people. And God would indeed use Moses to save his people, but it would be at a much later time and in a very different way. 
After he runs away, Moses spends 40 years. Think about that. 10 years feels long. 20 years feels, 40 years hanging out with sheep in the middle of nowhere. Imagine what was going through his head. I ruined my life. I literally had the world in the palm of my hand. And now I'm just hanging out with sheep all day, stuck in this dead end job in the middle of nowhere. But you see, the hidden hand of God was at work. And though in the eyes of Moses, his 40 years of shepherding probably seemed pointless, a total waste of time. The reality was God was preparing him to shepherd not just sheep, but God's own flock, the people of Israel, to lead them, to feed them, to protect them throughout the wilderness that he already had familiarity with. And so, friends, I pray that this would deeply encourage you this morning because the same God who orchestrated Moses' life in ways that were hidden is the same God who orchestrates your life in those ways too. He's at work in your mountaintop experiences, in your successes, but he's also at work in your failures, in your losses, in your pain. Perhaps some of us feel like right now you're at a pointless place in your life, a holding pattern of sorts. And when you compare yourself to your peers who seem to be, quote unquote, climbing the ladder, living the dream, it can be so discouraging. But what may seem like a wasted, pointless season to you, in the eyes of God, it might be exactly what you need what he sees fit, preparing you for what he has down the road. The Lord called Moses to go when he was 80 years old. All of his natural strength was gone. And this was purposeful in order that he would not walk in human strength, human might, human ability. But he would have no choice but to depend on the power of God and walk in the power of the Spirit. Moses, like many of you, like many of you, Moses had great vision, great talent. He was highly educated and knowledgeable. But his vision, talent, and knowledge were way ahead of his character. He didn't have the character to match. And vision, talent, and knowledge without the character to match, it might be impressive, to others, but ultimately it will prove destructive. Destructive to yourself and destructive if you're in a leadership position to those who follow you. You cannot microwave character. You can't instapot character. It's a slow cooking thing. 40 years worth for Moses. May this truth That God in his sovereign love is orchestrating every aspect of your life for your ultimate good and his ultimate glorious purposes. May that enable you to have peace no matter what season of life you're in. To be able to, as the scripture says, as the apostle Paul calls us to, to give thanks in all circumstances. You can because you know that the hidden hand of God is orchestrating every aspect of your life, even the bad, for your good and his glory. His hidden hand is always at work.
Secondly, God revealed. Chapter 3, verse 1, describes how Moses was keeping the flock of his father-in-law, Jethro, and he leads them to the west side of the wilderness, and he comes to Mount Horeb again, otherwise known as Mount Sinai. This was so far from his home, far from where he normally was, and so the question is, what's he doing here? And it's very simple. He's being a good shepherd. He's trying to find out the best place to take his sheep, the best pasture he could find. So he keeps wandering, wandering, wandering. Next thing he knows, he's here at Mount Horeb at an unexpected place. He's at an unexpected place both in his daily life and routine, but he's also at an unexpected place in the entirety of his life. Again, think about this. If you could go back in time and tell Egyptian Moses when he was still in Egypt on top of the world, if you went back and told him, one day you're going to be living in the wilderness of Midian, taking care of sheep for a guy named Jethro, he'd be like, are you kidding me? You're out of your mind. I would never be caught dead doing something like that. And yet, that's exactly what happened. He's at an unexpected place in his life, yet it was at this time. At that very time, God reveals himself to Moses in a powerful and transformative way. Some commentators actually believe this is a moment of his conversion. Even, um, I believe our sister Cece said that phrase. He knew about God, but he didn't really know God. Oftentimes, we see this dynamic, this same dynamic play out in people's lives. God will often reveal himself in a profound and transformative way when you're at a place in your life that you didn't expect to be. Let me say that again. God will often reveal himself to you in a profound and transformative way when you're at a place in your life you didn't expect to be. Namely, places of deep disappointment, places of discontent, because your life did not turn out as you expected. Whether this means your career, whether this means your marriage, whether this means your family, whether this means your lack of a marriage and family. Your dreams didn't come true, or perhaps they've become a nightmare. Or sometimes your dreams do come true. You got what you wanted. You actually got what you wanted, but it fails to live up to your expectations. And this is where comedian Jim Carrey wisely expresses, I think everybody should get rich and famous and do everything they ever dreamed of so they can see that it's not the answer. He got everything that he wanted in worldly terms, and yet he's empty. But you see, it's in moments like these that God often reveals himself in a profound and transformative way, whether for the first time for some people they come to salvation, or even if you are already saved, perhaps it's been a long time since the reality of God really dawned upon you. And God will do that. He'll use times and seasons that are just unexpected. God used a burning bush to grab Moses' attention, and what a sight it was to behold. It was on fire, and yet it's not consumed. And through that, God is revealing something, several things actually, about himself. I'll only name two. For one, 
He's revealing himself as the God of all creation, able to control the natural world. You see, according to the laws of nature, bushes, when they're on fire, are supposed to burn up. This bush is not. The God of creation can suspend the laws of nature as he pleases. Now, why would that be important for Moses in particular to see? It's because God was going to deliver the Israelites by suspending the laws of nature. Rivers aren't supposed to turn to blood. Gnats aren't supposed to be formed out of dust. Seas do not divide into walls of water, and yet God was showing the supernatural power that he would demonstrate through his servant Moses. But a major truth that God reveals about himself in the burning bush that I really want to focus on is this. God is both transcendent and imminent. Transcendent and imminent. And I'm going to unpack what that means. Throughout the Old Testament, there is example after example of God's holy presence represented by fire. Genesis 15, God reveals himself to Abraham in the form of what? A smoking fire pot, a flaming torch. After the Israelites escape Egypt finally, God meets them on Mount Sinai. And it says in Exodus 19, 18, now Sinai was wrapped in smoke because the Lord had descended on it in fire. Fire is an appropriate representation of the presence of God because he is absolutely holy which means he's absolutely, infinitely other in a category of his own, eternal, omnipotent, omniscient, omnipresent, not bound by space and time, but included in this is his absolute moral purity and perfection. He is only good. There's no evil. There's no error whatsoever in him. And so because of this, God tells Moses in verse 5, don't Come near. Take your sandals off your feet, for the place which you are standing is holy ground. Verse 6, Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look at God. This is the reaction of all those in Scripture who encounter the presence of God. It's actual terror. As one commentator writes, holiness endangers the sinner because the holiness of the Lord is not a passive attribute, but an active force. Embracing all that conforms to it and destroying all that offends. But God is not there to just terrify and destroy Moses. Rather, he's inviting him in. God says, Moses, Moses. And the repetition, repetition of someone's name in, in ancient Semitic culture, the repeti repetition of someone's name is actually a term of endearment. It's not the booming voice we think of, Moses. It's, it's actually, it's a welcoming tone. It's, hey, I want relationship. It's an inviting tone. In verse 7, God reveals his heart to Moses. The Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt and have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their suffering and I've come down to deliver them. And so, yes, though God is transcendent, far above us in every way, He's also imminent, meaning he desires to draw near to us. He desires a personal, intimate relationship with us. He concerns himself with our suffering in such a way that it moves him to want to do something, to want to act on our behalf. 
And yet you see, there's a tension here. Because on one, one hand, God says, Moses, Moses, come here. And then he says, wait, don't come that close. Right? It's like what we've experienced in our COVID reality. When you welcome someone, say, hey, good to see you. Wait. <laughs> right? Hey, I haven't seen you. Wait, wait, wait. Not too close. I want to see you. I want to be with you. But not too close. That's the tension. That's the tension. Moses, I want to draw you near, but you can't come that close. How could Moses, a man who killed someone, come into the presence of a transcendent and holy God and just hang out with him? But it's not just Moses. As, you, as we'll see in the coming weeks, this tension persists where people can only come so close to God's presence lest they die. He tells them on Mount Sinai, don't even touch the mountain, you will die. Because God being perfectly holy and perfectly just, listen up, would be unholy and unjust to just let our sin slide. What would you say of a judge who presented, who was presented with clear evidence Stone-cold, clear evidence, closed case evidence. This person is guilty. This person has done criminal activity. All the evidence is obvious, and the judge just says, eh, don't worry about it. He's going to let it slide. We would be appalled. We'd be utterly appalled. And so it is with God. It would be wrong for him to say of our sin, it's all right. Don't worry about it. How is this tension resolved? Where on the one hand, God wants to draw us close, but in doing so, if he did it, we'd be consumed like a moth in a flame, just burned up in his holiness. Well, in verse 2, we read of this figure called an angel of the Lord. But if you pay careful attention to the passage, this angel's not like other angels like Gabriel who was simply sent by God. It's clear when you read the text, this angel is speaking not just sent by God, but he was speaking as God. He's talking to him directly. I am the Lord. And the reason is because it was, in fact, God. Generations later, this transcendent God would descend once again coming even nearer, nearer than he came to Moses. And this time he would come in the flesh to resolve the tension of Mount Sinai. I want him near, but not too close. I want him near, but they can't be that close to me. To resolve the tension of Mount Sinai, Jesus climbed Mount Calvary. And on the cross, Jesus took the punishment we deserved for our sin, satisfying the demand for justice. And as a result, all who trust in him, not only can you just draw near to God, here's the crazy thing. You're brought all the way in, so close, that the scripture says you are united to him. You're literally one with him. I think of, I don't, as I was, uh, you know, reviewing this, this idea, I was thinking of Pastor Dan, actually, our, our own Pastor Dan, who recently got married to Myung. But if you weren't aware, they're actually not together right now because Myung needs to finish out her school year. She, she's a teacher out in California. 
So even though they're married, they, they can't actually be together till her school year is over, which thankfully is coming up pretty soon. But they'd have to, they've had to live apart temporarily. Now, if Myung suddenly moved to Baltimore, I guess that's a little better. And if you were to ask Pastor Dan, oh, I heard Myung's in Baltimore now. Is that good? I'm sure Pastor Dan would say, it's all right. Because for him, close isn't good enough. Just kind of close is not good enough. And so it is with God. He didn't just want us kind of close. He wanted to be with us at all times, forever, fully united. And he died to make it so. Finally, Moses' response. The Lord explains to Moses in verse 10, Come, I will send you to Pharaoh that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. How does Moses respond? He doesn't say, it's about time. I've been waiting. No, he says, who am I that I should go? There's a, a deep sense of humility, feeling both unworthy and unfit. I'm 80 years old, God. What am I going to do? I can barely make it to Egypt. But God says, I will be with you. And Moses asks, when I come to the people to tell them the God of their fathers has sent me to you, and they ask, what is his name? God said to Moses, I am who I am. Tell them, I am has sent me to you. In the Hebrew, it's Yahweh, the divine name written in your Bible in the English as Lord with all caps. That's Yahweh. That's, that's the divine name. That's I am. Out of reverence for this holy name, the Jews didn't even say the name. They would just say Adonai or Jehovah as a replacement word. God refers to himself as I am, and he's conveying several ideas once again, but one of the things that God is conveying is this, his absolute self-sufficiency. I am. I don't need anybody. I don't need anybody's help. I don't need anybody's support. I'm fully self-sufficient, just like the fire that's burning and doesn't need wood to burn. I am fully self-sufficient. I am all-powerful. Now, not only would this revelation of the name of God encourage the people of Israel, it would also encourage Moses. Moses, I am with you. I am all-powerful. And he was to find assurance in this. Verse 15, God says, Say to the people of Israel, The Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. Again, not only would that name encourage the hearts of the people of Israel, we have not been forgotten the God of our forefathers is true to his promises, certainly would encourage them, but it was also an encouragement to Moses. How so? Well, if you're familiar with the stories of some of these patriarchs, this is how, listen. The God of Abraham is the God who calls us into the unknown and tells us to trust him because he will keep his promises. The God of Isaac his story represents a God who overcomes impossible odds. How am I going to have a baby at 90-something years old? Against all odds, God provides. The God of Jacob reminds us of a God who works through people who are a mess, who have tried and failed and are full of all kinds of flaws and family problems and dysfunction, who've made so many mistakes, and yet God still uses them. And so, yes, Moses was right to feel inadequate, 
Moses was right to be humbled by the call, but at the same time, God assures him, I'm the God who's calling you, the great I am. I will be with you. And that was meant to fill him with boldness. Boldness. So friends, as we go forth today, I want to encourage you to go forth in the same way, in this beautiful balance of humble boldness. Because the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob is our God too. Walk in this beautiful balance of humble boldness on one hand saying, I'm unworthy and I'm unfit. Who am I? But at the same time, remembering the great I am is with you. In times of extreme hardship and suffering, when you feel unable to carry on, you're wondering how I'm going to make it through. I don't, I don't have it anymore. I can't do this anymore. Know this. The great I am has promised he's with you. And he will sustain you with a strength beyond yourself. Such that you will become like a burning bush yourself. Going through the fiery trials. But not consumed. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you for this day to be reminded through these baptisms and through your word. You are the God of salvation. You are the God who rescues your people in need. You are the God whose hidden hand is always at work even when we can't see it. Doing things beyond our understanding and imagination for your glorious purposes and for our good. You are the God who, though you are high and above Every other name, matchless, transcendent, you are a God whose heart desired to draw so near to us, to have us so close that you took on flesh and laid down your life so that we could not just be kind of near, but to bring us all the way in to be one with you. You are the God who takes imperfect, broken, flawed, unfit, incapable people like us, jars of clay, but it's through your power, through your power, that even through jars of clay like us, your glory shines and your power flows through us to the world unto your glory. Use our lives in this way. Help us to go forth from this place, being in Christ, with that same balance of humble boldness unto your glory. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's rise and we'll close in this song.